Okay, please stand and turn with me to John 3. Very famous passage. Although, we're going to stop just short of the most famous part. There's a reason for that. Because I'd like us to particularly consider what Jesus says right before John 3.16. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot see enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, and you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... So must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Amen. Now, let's turn back to Psalm 47. All right. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises, for God is the King of all the earth, sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations, God sits on his holy throne, the princes of the peoples gather as the peoples, as the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God, he is highly exalted." Amen. You may be seated. One of the most rousing, I think, and really one of the most important scenes in the life of David comes in 2 Samuel chapter 6, when David uh, leads a procession into the city of Jerusalem as the priests are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, uh, that symbol of God's presence 
uh, for the first time to its new home in uh, David's new capital city. And you remember how it says that day that uh, David danced before the Lord with all his might. This was a a huge moment um, because David had defeated the Philistines uh, decisively at last. He had taken Jerusalem from the Jebusites. Uh, God had just given David victory after victory after victory. And in fact, chapter 7, right after this, is going to go on to say the Lord had given David rest from all his surrounding enemies. Uh, now, many of you know that to go up, to, to go, to get into Jerusalem, really from any direction around it, you generally have to go uphill because Jerusalem is situated on a hill. Uh, there's Mount Zion, and that's why there's that set of psalms later in the Psalter called the Songs of Ascents, uh, songs for God's people to sing as they ascend to the temple, looking up, walking up from below. Um, in, in this psalm, of course, it's not the people who are going up, though. It's the Lord. It's the Lord who is going up. In fact, uh, some writers suggest that the, 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 the central image being evoked by this psalm is that of the ark being brought into Jerusalem. Um, it's also been referred to as an enthronement psalm. The idea of someone going up to a throne uh, when you think, well, when was God enthroned in Jerusalem, kind of symbolically, publicly, uh, in terms of the old co- covenant symbols? And, well, that, when the ark was brought into Jerusalem, the Lord was, in a sense, enthroned there um, as king, even over the king, even over David, who was humbling himself before God as he danced uh, before the ark. Uh, Some people will go so far as to say that this psalm was maybe written um, in memory of that occasion or even for that occasion. I think any of those things would be kind of hard hard to prove. Um, And so my point here is not to bind this psalm to some particular moment. Um, And in fact, there are other times in the scriptures where you can think of God going up, even the ark going up. uh, and, and connection with the sound of a trumpet, uh, which you see in verse 5. Um, you can think of the people going up into Jericho. The trumpet's being blown, and the people go up, uh, led by the Lord to take over the city. God victoriously going up with a shout and a trumpet. You can think of other places in the Old Testament. Every time Israel would set up, they were to blow the trumpets, and the ark would lead them forward victoriously. So there, there are many aspects of how this would play out in the Bible. Um, so again, not trying to tie this down just to the entry of the ark into Jerusalem, but, but rather the point is to ask, what imagery is this psalm trying to impress in our imaginations? And I think that image of the ark going up victoriously with, with great fanfare into the royal city, I think, I think that that's helpful uh, to have in our imaginations to get us on the right track for understanding the poetry of this particular psalm. Now, in a, in a lot of psalms, you'll get a, a, some kind of mixture of, of praise with some kind of petition or lament or so forth. Uh, you know, some things are going well, some things are going not so well, and these things are, are both present. Here is not like that. This psalm starts with joy. It ends with joy. There's joy in the middle. It's all a great big celebration. Um, but as we go through and we, and we consider this psalm in light of the whole Bible— um, I think we're going to see some, some further texture emerge, and that's borne out in the three points I'm about to give you right now. 
First of all, verses 1 through 4 will be delighting in our defeat. Then second, going up by coming down, verses 5 through 7. And then third, the peoples and the people, verses 8 and 9. So delighting in our defeat, verses 1 through 4. Going up by coming down, and then the peoples and the people. All right, verse 1. This psalm begins with the command, clap your hands, all peoples. It's very important to notice right off the bat that this psalm starts by addressing all peoples, all peoples. It's being written from an Israelite's perspective, right? So, so when it says us in verse 3, who is the us? Well, it's, it's not all people in the world, it's Israelites in particular. But the psalm writer is not just speaking to Israelites, he's speaking to all peoples. People from every kind of background, every kind of part of the world are being called to shout to God with loud songs of joy. And why are they to do this? Well, we could uh, summarize it by saying it's because of who God is on the one hand and also what God has done. So what does this psalm say about who God is? Well, first of all, he's the Lord. It's Israel's covenant God. I am. He's uh, the most high. There's no one in authority over him. Um, No God higher than the Lord. Uh, He's the ultimate sovereign of the universe, which is, again, why this psalm applies to all peoples, because the Lord is the most high God um, over all the earth. Uh, He's to be feared. So his greatness should provoke in people a a deep reverence, an understanding of his his holiness and power. Um, And then finally, he is a great king over all the earth. And so God is not just God over Israel. He's not a local deity. He's not tied to some particular place. He's also not a national deity, limited in his reach to some uh, particular people group. God is the universal king. And that means that it's not just Israelites who have the responsibility to worship and acknowledge and revere him and rejoice in his reign. It's all peoples everywhere. God is the universal king. But verse 3 adds a little bit of a wrinkle to this. Uh, Remember that he's just addressed all peoples, but then immediately he goes on, he subdued peoples under us. So the nations outside of Israel are supposed to be shouting joyfully to God, verse 1, but, but what's just happened to at least some of the peoples? Well, they've just been subdued. They've been subdued. What's just happened to some of the nations? God has put them under Israel's feet. But God is the king over all the earth, over all the peoples. But what this is showing us is that As the sovereign king, he does give priority in his rule to one people, to his people. He chose our heritage for us, it says, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. So there is this focusing of the power and the authority and the love and the care of the universal king on a particular people. God didn't choose that kind of heritage for any other people. He doesn't love any other people the same way that he loves the descendants of Jacob. Why is that? Well, let's look again. It's not because Jacob is something special. 
in himself, in themselves. It's not because Israel has earned this from God somehow. Verse 4 emphasizes God's initiative, God's sovereign choice. He chose our heritage for us and God's sovereign love, Jacob whom he loves. Why? Just because he loves us. Not for any reason in us. All the reason for his love is in him. All right, so here's the question. So how can the peoples of the world be expected to clap their hands with joy when they've just been subdued under Israel? How can they be expected to shout to God with loud shouts of joy when they've just been put under Israel's feet? Those things don't seem to match up. Well, here's what this psalm is teaching then. What it's teaching is that the greatest well-being for the whole world is going to come how? It's going to come through the triumph of God's kingdom. All of the peoples are going to be blessed when God's people are victorious. And on the one hand, um, that makes a perfect sense. Uh, again, you think of Genesis 12.3. We've talked about so many times, Abram, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Blessing uh, for all the families, all the nations, is going to come through this one family, this one nation. But you see, there's still an irony, right? There's still an irony because in this psalm, the worship of the nations is supposed to come after Israel's victory over the nations. So the nation has just been defeated, and yet they're supposed to worship. Now, obviously, for, for some nations, Israel's victory was not a blessing at all, right? So Israel's victory was not a blessing for the Philistines. It was not a blessing for the Jebusites. It was judgment, plain and simple. But if we zoom out a little bit and think about the bigger picture, I think there are two senses where we can say that Israel's victory is a blessing uh, for the nations more generally, for the peoples more generally. First of all, um, we have to remember that it's through Israel, particularly, that God had planned all along to bring about a savior for the whole world. Okay, So the world needed Israel because Israel was the line of promise. Israel is where the offspring of the woman was going to be born. And so when Jesus came, he was, in a sense, the ultimate Israelite. He was the true Israelite who became everything that Israel was supposed to be and who did everything that Israel was supposed to do. Jesus, the true Israelite. And so it's his victory, it's his triumph um, that leads to blessing for all of the nations through the gospel, right? But let's take that one step further. There's also a sense in which we can truly say that the nations can delight in their defeat by God. There's a sense in which the Bible calls us as Christians to delight in our defeat by the Lord Jesus Christ. To rejoice that he has triumphed over the natural hardness of our hearts. That he has reached down and saved us when we could not save ourselves and when, in fact, we were by nature his bitter enemies. I love the shorter catechism when it says, Christ executed the office of a king... How does he do it? Well, it's not just by ruling and defending us. It's not just by restraining and conquering all the enemies, his and ours. What's the first thing it says? Christ executed the office of a king by subduing us to himself. 
by subduing us to himself. It is by coming under the rule of Christ. It's by having our rebellious hearts subdued to obedience by his word and spirit. That is the only way that any person can find real, ultimate well-being. And when you experience that kind of defeat, that defeat is your salvation at the hands of God. And that's the reason for us to clap our hands, to shout to God with loud songs of joy as we're gathered in from the nations, defeated, but a saving defeat by the Lord Jesus Christ. The further irony, turning it back the other way, is that those who have been subdued by that saving love of the Lord Jesus are no longer than one of the peoples out there. Because when that happens, you actually become his. You become part of the one people whose blessing and protection is the burning focus of his kingly rule over all things. Remember how Ephesians 1 ends, I've quoted this many times to you, how God the Father put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church or for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. As it's been said by a friend of mine, Christ's kingship is cosmic in scope, but churchly in priority. He rules over all things for us. And when you are defeated by the Lord Jesus and brought under subjection to his loving rule over you, you become his and you become the beneficiary of all of that um, power that he has over all creation. Okay, moving on. Verses 1 through 4 focus a lot on what God has done for Israel. And so Israel's, um, the, the blessing that Israel gets is a big focus of the first four verses. Notice that in verses 5 through 7, there's nothing there about Israel. It's all just about God himself. We often talk about wanting our worship to be God-centered worship. God-centered worship. It's so important. And one implication of that is that we should not have to make reference to ourselves every time we pray, every time that we sing. Obviously, there are lots of things to praise God for because of what he's done for us. And so we want to praise God for uh, for the gospel, for, for the things that Jesus did in his life, and his ministry, and his death, and his resurrection, all of these things. There's, there are so many things we can praise God for. But one of the uh, ideas behind God-centered worship is that we ought to be able to praise God just for who he is. Just because he is worthy of worship in himself. And even if he had never done a thing for us, he would still be worthy of our praise because he is God. And so these middle verses are a call to worship this great God. It repeats five times the command, sing praises. Uh, which leads me to ask, have you ever wondered why we sing in worship? Why? Why do we sing in church? Because it didn't have to be that way. We, we could, or we could um, come to church. We could just have Bible reading and prayer and a sermon and an offering uh, and maybe Lord's Supper and, and then go home. Um, some people don't like to sing. So why, why sing? Why do we do this? And maybe, oh, I think some people probably assume, well, it's just, it's just what, just, 
just what we do. It's just kind of most people do like to sing. Everybody likes music. Maybe it kind of helps us feel more worshipful. Maybe that's why. Uh, maybe we do it to kind of get our emotions in line uh, with our worship. And some of those things are true, right? That, those are some of the purposes, maybe why God has commanded us to sing. Those are some of the purposes of singing in worship. Um, but the, the basic reason Christians sing in worship is because God commands it. Because God has said, this is what I want my people to do. And of course, it is delightful. Of course, it is beautiful. It is moving. At least it should be. And maybe we do like it. And, and I hope we grow more and more to love it, singing God's praises and worship. But the reason to sing, and the reason to sing out, as his psalm is calling us to do, not, not, to, not to hold back and mumble, you know, not to say, well, I'm one of these people who can't really carry a tune in a bucket, so I'll just kind of mouth the words and, and let the real magi- uh, mu- musicians do the singing. No, this is what God is calling us all to do, each and every one of us. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. Sing praises with a psalm. Because God is the King of all the earth, and that's what the King of all the earth has said that we should do. That's a great privilege to do it, and a great joy. And the more we do it from our hearts, with these kinds of commands in mind, the more I think we'll grow to love it more and more. Um, you may be interested to know that uh, when it says sing praises with a psalm, the word translated psalm there is the word maskil. And sometimes you'll see that word without a translation in the headings of some of the songs, a maskil of the sons of Korah or something like this. Um, uh, nobody knows exactly what a maskil was. Often there are some of these kind of maybe musical directions that have been lost to history in terms of really nailing down exactly what it referred to. Um, commentators do note, though, that the word maskil is similar to the word for understanding. In fact, the King James, following the Septuagint, translates this verse, sing ye praises with understanding. And in fact, the... Um, uh, um, actually, never mind. Uh, so, so that's the way the King James translates it. Uh, I'm, I'm not certain that that's the better translation. Um, it, it may be that this is just giving us one particular example of, a, of one type of psalm that we can praise God with. Uh, but in any case, I think the point reflected in that translation is correct, that we should aim to sing with understanding. And there actually is a New Testament um, uh, parallel that backs up that translation. Uh, Derek Kidner, commentator, thinks that Paul actually has this verse in mind, the Septuagint version, with understanding. When he writes to the Corinthians, I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. So this is a point that the scriptures make, that we need to sing with our minds engaged. We don't want to just have our lips moving with our minds disengaged. If you want to sing from the heart, as the Lord is calling us to do in his word, That starts by thinking about the words, singing with understanding. And I know it's so easy to to kind of zone out mentally or get lost in the musical aspect of it and to kind of forget the meaning of the words that we're singing. But this is something really to strive for, to keep our thoughts engaged with the meaning of the words, to sing with understanding, to sing with our minds also. Okay, now obviously I skipped over verse 5, but I'm going to come back to it now, now that we've talked about that call to sing praises. Um, And this is where I want to camp out as we consider the heart of this second point, which I've called going up by coming down. That's one of these ironies. So verse 5 is about 
the exaltation of God. God is victorious. The Ark of the Covenant ascended up to Jerusalem with David, symbolizing God's triumph, his kingship, even his enthronement symbolically in Jerusalem. We talked about all those things earlier. But let's think about this in light of the rest of the Bible. How does this theme of God going up work itself out in the New Testament? Ultimately, I think it's right to say that it's in the ascension and enthronement of Christ. And what we call Christ's exaltation. But that's not the only sense in which the New Testament speaks of Christ being lifted up, is it? Before he was lifted up, or before he went up in his ascension, sitting at the right hand of God, what do we read in John 3? No one, Jesus said, has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And the first thing to see there before we go on, first of all, you can see that for Christ, the pathway for going up starts with going down. The pathway for going up for Christ starts with going down. But as he goes on, you can see that up and down imagery even even richer, kind of thicken up in the next verse. When he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. When was Jesus lifted up in that sense? Oh, it was on the cross. It was in his crucifixion. The cross, we generally think of as the moment of Christ's ultimate humiliation. right? The ultimate in going down, even to the very grave. But... We also have to realize that the cross was at the same time a moment of Christ's triumph. Colossians 2 says that on the cross, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. On the cross, it's speaking up there. Um, in John 12, Jesus says, Now will the ruler of this world be cast up, out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And John specifies, he's talking about the cross. He says he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Um, so Jesus is talking about the cross at the very moment. Um, uh, oh, he's speaking about the cross as the moment when he's going to be lifted up. But he's putting it in the context of his defeat of Satan. Saying, when is Satan going to be defeated? It's going to be when I am lifted up on the cross. And see, what was happening when Jesus was lifted up on the cross and enduring that agonizing sacrificial death as a substitute for sinners, he was also at that moment breaking the power of sin and Satan over his people permanently, forever, never to take hold on us again. Uh, there's a wonderful historic phrase to describe this. Uh, it's Christus victor. Christ the victor on the cross, even in the midst of apparent defeat. Christ uh, went up to his glory only by way of coming down in the incarnation. But even in that very lowest moment of suffering, of humiliation on the cross, even then he was being lifted up. He was being lifted up. And that was just the beginning because 
After that came the resurrection being lifted up from the grave. And after the resurrection, he was lifted up to heaven itself. He went up. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. What better description could there be than the heavenly ascension and enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ after he had finished his work on earth? And so, in Christ then, verse 5 here, is good news for the people of God that God has gone up with a shout because it calls to mind all those aspects of the work of Christ, all the ways that he came down for us, but also all the ways that he has been lifted up, which, as we've just seen, are many. All right, last thing, verses 8 and 9, the peoples and the people. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. And here it's uh, repeating the theme from verse 2 and verse 7, God's universal kingship. But look at what happens in verse 9, where it says, the princes of the people gather. Let's stop there for a second. When, When princes gather in the Old Testament, what does that usually mean? It usually means that they are going to war, usually against Israel. Okay, so it's usually bad news for Israel, although it's usually, it's, it's often much worse news for those princes because it's often that they're gathering together just to get defeated by the Lord. What you don't expect to find is the princes of the peoples gathering as though they actually were Israelites, as the people of the God of Abraham, as part of the covenant community. That's a remarkable thing to say, especially at this stage in the history of salvation. Um, And and for people like uh, the Christians that Peter was talking to in Acts 11 that we looked at this morning, this might seem like even a shocking thing to say if they really thought it all the way through. And maybe (laughs) I think the reason that Peter's uh, visit to Cornelius was so shocking to them was perhaps because they hadn't thought this verse all the way through. It might have helped them not to be so offended at what Peter had done. What's happening here is that the nations, the peoples, are becoming part of the community of the God of Abraham. The peoples are being incorporated into the people. And of course, this is just what you see happening in Acts 10 and 11. And so covering this psalm tonight is uh, very good timing. The many peoples of the earth you're seeing there with Cornelius is those many peoples are becoming part of the one people of God. Jews and Greeks together are sharing that one common moniker Christian that they're given at Antioch. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, Ephesians 2, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostilities creating in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, killing the hostility. That new hope for all the peoples, that peace that Jesus has made, is offered equally to those who used to be far off and to those who were near all along. But what I want us to see from from this psalm is that that peace, that uniting of the church into one people, that hope for Gentiles like us uh, to experience the blessing of being subdued to Jesus instead of the judgment of being subdued to Jesus. All of that is possible not only because of the cross. 
the cross was essential to getting that done. Obviously, that's what Ephesians 2 is focusing on. But this psalm shows us that the hope of the nations depends equally on the exaltation of Christ. That Christ has gone up with a shout. That he reigns over the nations sitting on his holy throne. That Christ is the universal king over all things. And that the shields of the earth belong to him and he is highly exalted. And that is why Christ is able to reach all over the earth and unite together people from any background, any place, any culture into this one people. Why? Because he is king over it all without exception. And that's a reason to rejoice and worship him, uh, which is exactly what we're going to do after we pray. So let's do that now. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for the way it uh, puts your glory on display, your um, power and majesty, your enthronement as the king over all of the universe and over all of the peoples. We thank you you have gathered us together from among the many peoples of the earth to be part of the one people of the God of Abraham. And we ask that you would fill our hearts with the joy and delight and glory of these things so that we would indeed sing praises to you from our hearts um, and clap our hands and shout to you with loud songs of joy as you've called us to do. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.